Genesis 3 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This week, schemes, plans, and intentions have been in the news. A year ago, the NFL had figured out that a weak offensive line made Pat Mahomes vulnerable. And they also figured out that two deep safeties limited Tyreek Hill's speed from connecting with long passes. Last year, the Chiefs' front office invested in strengthening the line. This year, salary cap realities means a shuffling of personnel throughout the league, and teams are now forced to plan for different playbooks in the fall. The playbooks this fall will be different than they were last year fall. Meanwhile, half a world away, reports are filed daily about the maneuvering of troops and weapons, which we are reminded is straight from the Russian playbook, which prompts leaders to preemptively meet and to strategize against the next page of the playbook. But schemes are not only an element of sports and world news. Schemes are part of our spiritual conflicts. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 reminds that people are not our enemies, but the plans that they and the invisible spiritual forces devise. As early as Job 5.13, 
which occurred about the same time as Abraham entered covenant with God. We read of the schemes of evil men as being wily. Wily was in the Bible before a coyote ever appeared on television. Wily is defined as either wrestling or to play a trick. Some people wrestled dirty. They would be the tricksters. And others wrestle well by exploiting the weaknesses of the opponent within the rules. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures and our New Testament, we can study the schemes of evil men. We see in Psalms 37, verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Later on, we read in Ephesians 4 in our New Testament, so that we may no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness. In deceitful schemes. Additionally, by the time of our New Testament, these evil schemes had been connected to one person who is completely evil. Evil personified in our minds is wrapped up in the person that we know as Satan or the devil. We read of his schemes in places like 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Other translations say of his schemes. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And while we quickly identified the serpent in the Garden of Eden with evil personified in Satan, that mindset would not have been the first thought for the Hebrews who received Moses' Torah. And it surely wasn't the perspective of Eve. When Eve saw and heard the serpent, she did not connect, oh, That's the devil talking to me. Because up until this point, she had never encountered evil. She had never conceived of deception or what we would call a lie. A lie. Everything that she had ever experienced had been deemed by God to be good or very good. And so, from her position of innocence, and life is good, she sees a serpent, and she hasn't seen all of the serpents. So, maybe a talking serpent was not a surprise to her. But I see if, because she was living in the innocence, it it made me think, if all you have ever tasted has been good, 
you wouldn't even consider that mom might put something in front of you that might be unpleasant. But the first time my mom offered liver and onions, I quickly learned it is possible for mom to put something in front of me that would not be pleasant. But up until liver and onions, everything she, she gave was good. And so I think the serpent may be the liver and onions of the garden. I quickly learned it is possible for mom to put something that is unpleasant. And this made me forever suspicious. And when she tried to offer calf brains, that was a hard no without ever crossing my lips. I went from the innocence of it's all good to the um, critique of, "Uh uh-uh, not in my life. And there are many of us who have only tasted good. There are others of us who have become cynical because we've tasted of the bad. We have all been disappointed or hurt by others. We have seen such wide examples of evil. It's not difficult for us to consider a person to be completely wicked. So seeing Satan in the serpent is intuitive for us. And it's totally consistent with the truth that is revealed in Scripture later. But thinking historically... Moses' audience would have recognized evil as rampant in many different people and many different religions. And, And so the evil of the serpent was just another form of evil. Eve had never seen a talking snake that we know of, but she had not seen all the snakes. So it would be plausible that one might be able to talk. Eve had never seen evil. So the possibility that this, Christ, that this creature may be saying something that could be harmful was also outside of her frame of reference. See, my premise is that the devil did not force Eve to sin. He didn't even introduce a new temptation My premise is that Satan merely brought to the surface a weakness that was already present. And when we think about the deceiver and the deception, my goal this morning is for us to realize that deception resides within us. And we may be deceived and the deceiver apart from Christ. Next week, Lord willing, we will see how sinners try to blame others. But today, I want us to be open to the idea that apart from Christ, every one of us, myself included, has the same tendencies as Eve. And every one of us, myself included, would do the exact same thing that Eve did to substitute my judgment for God's. See, temptation for us may not involve snakes and fruit, but every one of us is vulnerable to deception. Every one of us is vulnerable to contrary proposals 
to the goodness of God. The first proposal that begins to roll around in the mind of Eve is a proposal of doubt. Is God really good? And then even denial. What God has said cannot be trusted. As I see in front of us temptation, I'm aware that all of us must be aware of both the external influences and our internal voices. First, let's think about the external influence. Because there was a serpent that spoke to Eve that kind of brought up these thoughts of disobedience. The serpent is described as being more crafty than any other beast. Now, any other beast, I think this was an ordinary snake. It wasn't a special one-off creation of Satan. It was simply a, a snake. And I despise snakes of every variety. I know there are snakes that eat mice, which many consider a nuisance. But I don't want to see either the mouse or the snake. I'm glad that we have young men who will wrangle the snakes of our county so that I don't have to see them. One thing I've learned is that a a snake can strike suddenly. When the beast seems disinterested, he can strike in many different directions. When the animal is coiled, he may appear to only be able to strike a short distance. But if he uncoils in that strike, his venom may reach much further than thought. And that idea to deceive his reach, to deceive of his intention, I think is the word crafty that we have in front of us. Because the word crafty is not always a negative thing. It's not always deceitful. Because Jesus told his own followers in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. wolves. So you be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Being crafty, being intentional is not always a bad thing. Every outdoorsman that I know has learned to use camouflage to his or her advantage. The hook has to be camouflaged by bait. The hunter must not be visible in the reeds as the ducks approach, or in the thicket as the tom or the buck draws near. And snakes have also been granted significant camouflage abilities. Wicked or evil enticements often use that same camouflage. Wickedness often appears to be pleasant, but it has a dangerous follow-up. Drugs offer the enticement of limiting your anxiety, providing an escape, but then there's addiction on the backside. Alcohol may offer a merry spirit, but then there's the hangover. Sex, apart from marriage, promises good feelings, 
But I have found that sex not done God's way generally ruins good relationships or prolongs bad ones. See, by Jesus' day, evil had been personified, and this external influence is named Satan or the devil. Because we read in John chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father the devil. Evil personified. And you will, and your will is to do as your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus specifically says there is one who is totally evil, one who is totally wicked, one who always tells lies, and it is personified in the person of Satan. Later on, we see in Revelation chapter 20 that Jesus sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And to read the rest of the story, that ancient serpent is thrown into a pit for a thousand years, And then he is brought up and then condemned to the lake of fire for eternity. See, in today's text, this ancient serpent asks questions that get Eve to reveal her own thoughts. Then he manipulates her thoughts. See, before he manipulates anything, Eve Eve exaggerates her thoughts. She says, yeah, God told us not to eat that one or even to touch it. But God never said don't touch it. And then once she has misquoted what God said, then Satan adds the surely. Oh, you will not surely die. These additions, these exaggerations are amplified in the voices in in Eve's mind. And so while there is a deceiver, the deceiver is playing on her own internal desires, which we see the internal voices. The internal voices begin to say, God cannot be trusted. God may not be as good as you thought he was. Then Satan implies, you know, God is just withholding something from you that would really be good. And then Eve concludes in her own mind, you're right. God may not be good. God may be withholding. As a matter of fact, maybe I ought to be like a God. Let me decide between good and evil. I can't trust what he has said. If he says, don't eat that or you will die... Yeah, maybe I won't. And our world today is full of people who substitute their conclusions for God's statements. If God says the wages of sin is death, and humans conclude, eh, maybe not. I'm not any worse than that guy. Maybe God will overlook. 
And humans today continue to substitute our judgment for what he has already said. Because as these internal voices broadcast on the public address system of Eve's mind, she now begins to encounter doubt and denial that God knows what is best. And from the messy attic of Eve's internal musings, she discovers a hidden treasure in that attic. A treasure that is standard in equipment in all of our human psyches. That hidden treasure that she discovers as she listens to the voices is the problem of humanity is our desire. Sometimes we desire the wrong things. And sometimes we desire good things at the wrong times. Let's first think about the malicious desires or the bad desires. Until now, in Eve's experience, God has been the arbiter of good. If he judges anything to be good, it is good. And so each day, God said, it is good, it is good, it is good. Oh, now that, that's very good. And it is God who has determined what is good. But Eve convinces herself that the ability to discern for herself what is good and what might not be good, it it would be desirable for me to have that ability to decide. How many parents here have ever had a child with a boyfriend or a girlfriend whom you did not approve? Perhaps your child just lacked the maturity for a healthy relationship. And what he was seeking in a special friend is not what you know makes a relationship last. Perhaps you just had that intuition that this is not going to end well. And you wanted to preserve your baby from experiencing that pain. But your child insisted It's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. So apart from your blessing, apart from your better judgment, the relationship sprouts, then it sours, and then it ends with unnecessary pain. I think every parent here has had a child who at one time wanted something that was not good for them. The malicious desires that we cannot avoid the pain in our children. The same thing continues to happen. This isn't just an adolescent problem. For the same thing happens when we go into debt thinking that this trinket will make me happy until the payments become unwieldy. The business opportunity makes promises until we are left with a garage full of makeup cookware, or supplements. That for-profit school promises a career, but two years later, all you can show for it are tuition payments. There are some times where we think we want something, and it's not necessarily good for us. We should never, never, never underestimate our own ability to convince ourselves that something is good. 
without the counsel of others. Because Eve had malicious desires, I will be like God. And every one of us in our human psyche has built that desire for something that might not be good for us. But not only malicious desires, I also see in these verses mistimed desires. Many will ask, why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if he was only going to prohibit them from eating it? Well, perhaps God had a later plan for that very tree. It may eventually have been a good addition to their diet. I deduce that God wanted them to learn to discern good from evil by dwelling in relationship with Him. By dwelling in fellowship with Him. And when Adam and Eve fellowshiped with God, over time they would get the heart of God and then they would be able to separate good from evil. In Jesus' temptation, Satan enticed Jesus to obtain worship by taking a shortcut around obedience. I think that tree was eventually going to be something good for Adam, but God was saying, not now, you're not ready for it. And God had the worship, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and Satan wanted to take a shortcut. It's not the desire, it's the timing of the desire that causes a problem. Some have pointed out that a car can be a very useful item, especially when we live 20 miles away from the closest Walmart. But there's a reason we don't give cars to 12-year-olds. A gun can be a very useful item, but we don't give them to 5-year-olds. Sexuality is a beautiful gift within marriage, but before or outside of marriage, it creates manipulation, shame, and unintended consequences. And I know this is a dated illustration, but how many teens thought Joe Camel or the Marlboro Man were cool? But they didn't have the ability to correctly think about the addiction that follows. See, not all desires are bad. Sometimes they're just mistimed. And I believe the eating of the fruit at this time was Adam and Eve getting an ability that they couldn't yet handle. But if they had fellowshiped with God, there may have been a time in the future where it was totally a good gift. But our doubts about God's goodness paired with our malicious or our mistimed desire, leads to a destructive product. And that product is the product of arrogance. When we become arrogant, the product is disobedience that we see in the last phrase of verse 6. And disobedience has two faces. The first face of disobedience is a willful disobedience. And every single person in this room or watching online can truthfully admit that we have chosen to substitute our desires for the commandments of God at some time in our lives. 
we know what is said and we choose to do differently. He is incapable of consent, but I'm going to use his name. Caleb Harshman, last Sunday, I noticed, and, even, and here's the dollar to pay him his royalty for using his name. Last week, uh, before Sunday school, Caleb has learned to imitate his mother, who takes pots out of the cabinet for cooking. And as toddlers do, they like to imitate the parents and the things they see. So he likes to take the utensils out of the drawers. And he was taking the utensils out, and Brendan was putting them back in, and he was taking them out, and Brendan was putting them back in. And so finally Brendan put him in, he shut the door, and he said, Caleb, no. And with his eyes squarely set on Dad's eyes, he got his hand on that drawer pull, and he smiled, and he began to pull it out. Without any anger or malice on dad's part, action was taken to communicate with Caleb that willful disobedience is not acceptable. And each of us have been willfully disobedient to God. We look him right in the eyes and say, watch this. Or in the phrase that's available out on social media, hold my beer. Don't, don't do this. No, no. Hold my soda while I do it anyway. It just becomes a challenge. And we all have been willfully disobedient to God, knowing what he says and substituting our judgment instead. But there's a second type of disobedience, and that's a passive disobedience. The passive disobedience is what we see her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, Adam is culpable for his own decision. We're going to see next week he tries to blame the woman, but Adam was right there with her during the whole event. But he remains silent. And as he remains silent and passive, we we, we actually see a phrase that has become very, very popular in the last two years. The phrase that I see on a lot of social media is that if we are silent in the face of injustice, we are complicit with the oppressor. And so if Adam was silent when Eve began to consider the fruit, he becomes complicit with the tempter. See, today we are expected to we're just expected to state our opinion on events before allowing all the facts to come to the surface. And sometimes for us, a delayed judgment is wise. Let me take that into consideration, and then I'll give you my opinion. But Adam ended any of that um, deliberation time when he ate. He was with her, and he ate for himself, Then he could no longer say, I just needed some more time to consider what was happening. Adam kept silent during the temptation, and in so doing, he gave a certain degree of a tacit approval. When he didn't say, Eve, watch out there, he was silently in complicity. 
And while Americans may not be able to define what makes a she a she or what makes a marriage a marriage, ancient Jewish law gave veto rights to a husband if his wife entered into a contract. Some of you men, you're going to want to look up this verse and you're going to want to underline it. In Numbers chapter 30, if she marries a husband and while under her vow and while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears then her vow shall stand and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand If the wife goes to the market and makes a poor decision and he hears about it, if he vetoes it right away, she's excused. But if he doesn't say something right away, verse 8, but if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself. And the Lord will forgive her. I don't understand this. I've grown up under equal rights. I've grown up under a woman who has just as much intelligence as a man. But at this time in history, there seems to be that if she enters a poor contract and you immediately say, what were you thinking? You can get out of the contract. And so this was going on in the minds of the Hebrew people. And so when Eve ate the fruit and when she offered it to Adam, he could have said, uh, no, ixnay on the utfrey. But instead he took as a passive act of disobedience. See, we live in a world where God has indicted sinners. But individuals choose to substitute our own judgment for the discernment of God. What God calls arrogance, rebellion, and disobedience. Many of us choose to deny as being sin. Or we minimize the consequences. To this day, in our own county, people choose to doubt what God has said and to substitute their own sense of reward and punishment. I know that God says that is sin, and I know that God says the wages of sin is death. I know that God says sin deserves punishment. But on the other hand, you know, I'm not that bad of a guy. And they substitute their own judgment for what God has already said. God has said that all have sinned and fall short of his glory. And God has said that the wages of that sin is death or separation from God. But kind, generous, good old boys refuse to accept what God has said. We must listen to the voice of truth. Truth says that man is guilty, but God provides a remedy. Amen? Man is guilty, but God provides a remedy for all who will place their trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus as the full payment 
for their sin. The gift of salvation is our reason for celebration of the Lord's Supper. When we share the bread and the wine, we celebrate that our sin has been covered. The payment has been made and we can be forgiven. 